Good morning, everyone. Nice to be back here for a little while. Um, yeah, and please keep praying for us. So we're going to read from Genesis 28, verses 10 to 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in the place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And and of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it will be a great help if you can keep that passage open in front of you as we unpack God's word. Let me pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we look back over this past year for your goodness to us. Lord, as we prayed, we haven't haven't always been faithful. We have fallen, we have failed, and we thank you that there is grace At the foot of the cross. We thank you for the table that we have in front of us that reminds us of the reason why we are able to enter your presence. Father, we pray that we may be reminded again of your great promise that you will be with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. We pray, Lord, that you will write that upon our hearts. Speak to us through your word, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. At Christmas time, we read some of the well-known, well-loved birth narratives of Jesus. Matthew 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. Luke chapter 1, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Luke 2, the shepherds praised God, saying, glory to God in the highest. A good question for us to ask is, who is this God? What is he like? Who is he? You see, we can't assume that when we use the word God, that we're on the same page. Some will say that uh, God is within you. Look inside yourself. 
Others will say that God is Allah, a God of power to whom you are to submit. Still others in ATR will say that Nkulunkulu is a great God, but he is distant. He is unknowable. He is unapproachable. So the question, who is this God who appeared to Mary? Who is this God who appeared to Joseph? Who is this God to whom the shepherds worship? Glory to God in the highest. Now the answer is given to us, so we're not left in, in the dark. The answer is given to us in the Old Testament. There are various images, pictures in the Old Testament. There are key moments in the Old Testament where God defines himself. And of course, those images are fleshed out in the New Testament. And today we're going to have a look at this pivotal passage in the Old Testament. It's a key passage where God is defining himself, Genesis 28, Jacob's dream at Bethel. Next week we'll have a look at Exodus 3, Moses' burning bush in the desert. Verse 15 is probably the key verse. Have a look at verse 15. God says to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Especially note that phrase, I am with you. Three principles that will help us unpack this passage. Jacob is confronted by the rule of God. Jacob is confronted by the gateway to God. And Jacob is confronted by the presence of God. In many ways, what we have here is the original conversion story. It's the prototype of being born again. That's what we have here. It's the prototype of what it looks like to become a child of God. And no doubt you'll see something of yourself in in Jacob. Perhaps not too much. A little bit of background, some context so that we understand what is happening in this passage. Here we have here we have the original dysfunctional family. Let's start with the grandparents. Some grandparents here? Yes? Let's start with the grandparents. God called Abraham from Ur. And God said to Abraham, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will give you a place. I will give you a people. And I will be with you. However, when Abraham's wife Sarah is unable to have children, Sarah gives Abraham her husband, she gives him her servant-maid Hagar to sleep with, to bear a child, to fulfill this promise that you will be a great people. When you read the passage, there seems to be no objection from Abraham. Whatever you say, honey. And uh, Ishmael is born. But like all polygamous relationships, there is intense jealousy, intense hatred. Sarah drives Hagar and Ishmael into the harsh desert, not concerned that death awaits them. So Jacob, that beautiful picture you have of your grandparents hanging on the wall in the lounge, you know that picture, your grandparents in their Sunday best, Uh, They look so adorable, so quaint, so innocent. Well, actually, it's not the whole story, is it? They are dysfunctional grandparents. Together, as a couple, they're a piece of work. Then you have the next level. You have Isaac. Remember, Isaac was the firstborn son of Abraham after Ishmael. 
Isaac and Rebekah are no better. They have twin boys, Esau the firstborn and Jacob the secondborn, but there's intense favoritism in the family. We are told in chapter 25 that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Remember, Esau was a hunter. He loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Isaac clearly loves the firstborn son because of greed. That's really what it is. The firstborn son gives him gifts, gives him presents, buys him what he wants. He goes hunting, brings back the game. They have a braai, they watch rugby, clippies and coke. Rebecca loves Jacob, probably a bit of a mommy's boy. He loves to be at home, he loves to cook, he listens to his mother. Many of you, sadly, many of you know, in your family or your extended family, you know how favoritism can destroy a family. It's not a small thing. It's poison. It's toxic. It's almost as bad as the polygamous marriage of Umkulu Nogogwa. Not least the two boys who absolutely hate each other. So dinner at the kitchen table is not peace and quiet. It is war. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and then there's Jacob, our hero, the second-born twin son. His name means, in Hebrew, his name means taken by the heel or he cheats. That's his name. He's very, very well named. He cheats his brother out of his birthright. He colludes with his mother to lie to his father and cheats his brother out of his firstborn blessing. He cheats his father-in-law, who you remember actually cheated him, and then he tries to cheat God. So here's Jacob, intense jealousy, total lack of respect for his father. He's manipulative, calculating, deceptive. He's a two-timing cheat. That's Jacob. What do you have? What do you have here, my dear friends? Is a soapy. That's what you have here, not for persons under 18. Sex, nudity, language, violence. It's all there. It's generations. It's Suzalo. It's scandal. It's Skiam Sam. All rolled into one. That's what we have here. The original dysfunctional family. There's no sleepover for the kids with these neighbors. Oh, yes, and Esau the older marries two wives. They are wives from a neighboring, a much-hated neighboring tribe called the Hittites, who, I quote, made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. It's a little bit like a good Jewish kosher boy marrying two Palestinian girls from the city of Gaza. That's the family. By all means, don't go to the Christmas lunch. So when you open up this family tree, when you dig down in the text, it's extraordinary that God has anything to do with them. I mean, God is dealing here with the most, the most rotten of raw material. They're rotten. None of them escapes blame. They're the true blue sons of Adam, true blue daughters of Eve. Every one of them infected by the universal recurring gene called sin. 
rebelling against God. None more so than Jacob. He's a cheater to the core. Rotten raw material. Whom God has, ironically, God has chosen to be the father of God's people. How extraordinary that God's choice, God's mercy, should fall on a rotten cheat. How extraordinary that God should want to be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of all people. But my dear friends, if we are honest, is there not a touch of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob in all of us? Is there not a touch of the family dynamics you have here in your family, your extended family? Which of us has not tried to manipulate people? Which of us? Try to deceive people, try to cheat people, try to use people, try to step on people. There's not a single one here this morning, my dear friends, who hasn't done that in one way or the other. We all have blood on our hands, don't we? You see, the scandal of Christianity is not that God rewards good people. That is not the scandal of Christianity. The scandal of Christianity is that God pours his grace on rotten people. People like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca, people like you and me. It's a scandal. All right, principle number one. You still with me? Amen? Yes? Good. Jacob is confronted by the rule of God. Let's pick it up, chapter 27, that gives you some of the background. Chapter 27, verse 41. Once again, paints the picture of this dysfunctional family. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her oldest son, were told to, to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her youngest son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, free to, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you, of both of you, in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, her husband, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? You get the picture? Rotten raw material. A family from hell. Pick it up, chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob now leaves Beersheba. His mother has warned him. Your brother wants to kill you. He wants to murder you. Uh, get out of here. Uh, Jacob left Beersheba and went, went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. 
And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Now, not to be unkind to Jacob, he doesn't seem to be the sharpest knife in the drawer because he uses a stone for a pillow. Have you ever used a stone for a pillow? To be fair, it may well mean that he put stones around his head to protect him. Here's Jacob. He has a dream. And there's a ladder. In fact, it's more like a staircase. And there are angels ascending and descending. Have a look at verse 13. It says that the Lord stands above it. It can equally be translated, stands beside him, which I think is more likely because of verse 15, I am with you, I will not leave you. And then verse 13 and 14, in the dream, God says to him, he repeats the promise he made to Abraham and to Isaac, I am the Lord, I will give you a place, I will give you a people, I will bless you. Now, the dream here is very probably a dream of what was known as a ziggurat. A ziggurat was an ancient temple in Mesopotamia. You can Google it, not now. Um, And uh, those ziggurats um, were built, and there were steps, and at the top of the ziggurat was supposed to be the place where you would meet with God. The greatest ziggurat at that time was called the ziggurat of Ur, which actually is where Abraham was born. And uh, tradition has it that um, the ziggurat was built 2000 BC, which is actually when Abraham was born. The remains were discovered by Sir Leonard Woolley in the 1920s, and then it was largely reconstructed in the 1980s, that's the ziggurat of Ur, by Saddam Hussein. Let me give you some kind of idea here of what the ziggurat looked like. He's dreaming, and he's dreaming of the ziggurat, which looked something like that. It had steps. It was like a staircase. And uh, Jacob sees angels here, uh, ascending and descending. And as he dreams of this, he hears God saying to him, I am the Lord, I am the God and father of Abraham and Isaac. I will give you a place. I will give you a people. I will bless you. So this is the dream that he has. God appears to him in this dream. And next week when we have a look at the burning bush, we'll touch on whether God still speaks through dreams or through burning bushes. Have a look at verse 16 where you see the response of Jacob to the dream, to God's revelation. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now what is obvious when you read this story is that Jacob is not looking for God. It's not Jacob looking for God, it's God looking for Jacob. God was the last thing on his mind. He's fleeing for his life. His brother wants to kill him. He's left his home, his lifelong home. He's in a strange, deserted place. 
no doubt depressed, no doubt in terror, and God appears to him in a dream, totally out of the blue, uninvited. So it's not Jacob calling on God. No, it's God calling on Jacob. It's not Jacob seeking God. It's God seeking Jacob. Jacob was not expecting to meet God. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. What an extraordinary cameo. Here is a true son of Adam, a true grandson of the patriarch Abraham, head of a rotten, dysfunctional family to the core, fleeing his brother, tail between his legs, not deserving God's attention, and God, the creator of the universe, the king of creation, the Lord God Almighty, speaks to him. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you, and I will not leave you. What we have here is the ancient prototype of Christian conversion. It's the prototype of being born again. Notice verse 21. It's the first time there are a couple of other occasions where Jacob talks about the Lord your God. Here he talks about the Lord my God. He's come to know the Lord. The Lord has invaded his life. Now, if you're a Christian, think of your own conversion. Not all that different from Jacob. You were quietly minding your own business. To be honest, you were expressing your own sinfulness, selfishness, rottenness in your own individual way. A quiet, respectable, undercover, narcissist, upset that the world will not dedicate itself to your happiness. Isn't that where we all were? Angry with the world. And God gatecrashed your life. That's what happened. Perhaps it was a book. Perhaps it was a sermon. Perhaps it was a friend. Perhaps it was a crisis. But God invaded your life. He gatecrashed your life. And out of the blue, you wanted to read the Bible. You wanted to be taught the Bible. You wanted to meet with God's people. I mean, amazing. Before that, you didn't want to mix with Christian people. You hated being with Christian people when they talked about Jesus. Didn't you? We hated that. And then God invaded your life. God took away your blindness. And suddenly you want to be with Christian people. You want to talk about Jesus. That's regeneration. That's being born again. God invading your life totally uninvited. And he does that specially with dysfunctional people. I mean, just look around you. (laughs) Some years back... A lady from another church was, um, her friends from this church suggested that she saw me for some counseling. And uh, so uh, she came to see me. She told me that she was planning to see a psychologist or psychiatrist. I thought she came to me first because it's free. And um, she told me her story. It was somewhat complicated, somewhat messy, but no more than most. And uh, let's call her Mary. I said, Mary, you don't need to see a psychologist or psychiatrist. You are a normal, dysfunctional person. And you need Christ. And I said, by the way, next week we're starting Christianity Explored. Why don't you join? And she did. And she was born again. 
You see, you cannot make yourself a Christian. It's impossible. You cannot manufacture your own regeneration, can you? You cannot, I cannot change your heart. Royden can't change your heart. Rafa can't change your heart. You can't, you and I can't change our own hearts. Think back to last year, New Year's. How long did you keep your New Year's resolutions? I mean, at my age, you don't even bother. (laughs) You see, being born again is supernatural. It's a miracle. God invading your life and making you a Christian. There's no other way. Now, you may say to me, Martin, if it's God who makes me a Christian, well then, surely there's nothing I can do. How do I become a Christian? What must I do? Well, the answer is, ask for it. Ask for it. Totally uninvited, the Lord, the King of the universe, confronts Jacob, speaks to Jacob, regenerates Jacob, makes him part of the family. And so at the burning bush, God introduces himself to Moses, and he says, I am, think about this, think of that family tree, think of the dysfunctionality. God says, I am the God, yes, my name, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And can you believe it? I am the God of Jacob. What a scandal. Principle number one, Jacob is confronted by the rule of God. Secondly, Jacob is confronted by the gateway to God. Let's pick it up again, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. It was normal in the Old Testament for God's people to build altars with stones for sacrifices. It was quite normal for altars to be anointed with oil, symbolizing the sacred nature of that place. Jacob is worshiping God here according to the customs of his age. Much later, God said to the nation of Israel, remember, Jacob was the father of 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And God said to Israel, when you cross the desert, the wilderness, you are to have a tabernacle, which was a movable tent, which symbolized the presence of God. And then even later, God said to Solomon, you are to build a temple, a fixed abode, which symbolized the presence of God. It was a holy place. Have a look at verse 17. Verse Jacob said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Verse 22 And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. So I'm sure you noticed here the emphasis on place. Notice there verse 11. 
And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Same thing again, verse 16. Then Jacob woke woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. Verse 17, how awesome is this place. So a good question is, do we have to go to a special place to find God? Now, my dear friends, there are billions of people on planet Earth who believe that. You need to go to Rome, or you need to go to Jerusalem, or you need to go to Mecca, or you need to go to the River Ganges, or you need to go to Polokwane in Limpopo. Ought we to seek out a Bethel? This is the house of God, the gate of heaven. If you go to much older church buildings, older ones, like 100 years old when I was a child, and uh, you will sometimes find an engraving of verse 17 on the wall. Or it's been carved into the lintel at the entrance of the church building. This is the house of God, the gate of heaven. Well, of course, that's nonsense. Let me explain. If this passage, which it is, is a pivotal moment in Old Testament, a moment that tells us who God is, then surely we as New Testament Christians ought to ask the question, where do we see Jesus in this passage? Is there a hint? Is there a taste? Is there a shadow? Something about Jesus in this passage. And there is. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 47. John chapter 1, verse 47. Let me pick it up from verse 47, but the key verse is in 51. Here we have the gospel according to John. He's given that magnificent introduction. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He's now speaking to his first disciples. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, You will see, notice, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Have a look at that. Verse 47, there's a hint of Jacob. Jacob was called Israel, the Israelites. Jacob was filled with deceit, but Nathanael has no deceit. So there's the first hint of Genesis 28. And then verse 51, notice, let me read that. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. No. Ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Genesis 28 is telling us the ladder, the staircase, is a hint of Jesus. Jesus is the ladder. So let me go back here. So here we have, here we have the ziggurat. What is John 1 telling us? John 1 is telling us that we do not reach God by trying to climb the ladder. 
We don't try and reach God by our good works, by our religion, by our morality. No, we're actually all dysfunctional people deserving God's judgment. But God, in his mercy, has taken the initiative. And Yahweh has taken the initiative and sent down his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, to take the punishment that we deserve so that we may be reconciled to God. And the angels of God ascending and descending, not on the ladder, but on the Son of Man. Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the staircase. Jesus is our Bethel. Jesus is our house of God. Jesus is the gate of heaven. You don't need to go to Polokwane or the river Ganges. You come to Jesus. Last principle, Jacob is confronted by the rule of God. Jacob is confronted by the gateway to God. And then Jacob is confronted by the presence of God. Now, when you look at the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, they are very much the same as the promise he made to Jacob. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless you with a place. I will bless you with people. I will be with you. Those are the same promises, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What is unique here? In Back to, back to Genesis 28. You're still with me. Back to Genesis 28. What is unique here? is that God reveals his divine presence in a special way. Verse 15, I am with you. I will keep you. I will not leave you. For the first time, God reveals his divine presence. So the God of Jacob is not unknowable. He's not distant. He's not unapproachable. No, he's the creator God. He's the kingly God. He's the speaking God. But now... We are told uniquely he's the personal God who was with you. He's with people like Jacob. Can you believe it? He's with people like you and me. What a scandal. That phrase, I am with you, becomes a description of God. It's almost like a name of God. I am with you. So in Genesis 31 verse 3, Jacob flees from Laban and God says, I will be with you. Psalm 23, one of our favorite psalms, verse 4, right in the middle of the psalm, David, speaking of God, says, For you are with me. Psalm 139, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I descend to Sheol, you are there. Your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. It's a new name for God. I am with you. So, once again, we ask the question, if this is a pivotal passage in the Old Testament, what does it say about Jesus? Where do we find Jesus in this passage? Well, of course, the ladder, the staircase, the bridge. We've seen that. He is our Bethel. But there's more. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Finally, we get to the Christmas narrative. You've been waiting. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You know the word so well. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
It's breathtaking, isn't it? Sometimes when the truth, true truth strikes you, it takes your breath away, you can't breathe. I am with you is the name of Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. Genesis 28 is a promise of Jesus being with us forever and ever. Emmanuel, God with us. In some ways, this phrase, I am with you, is the theme of Matthew's gospel. You find it here at the launch of the gospel. Emmanuel, I am with you. And then you find it right at the end of the gospel. It's almost like two brackets. This is what it's all about. Genesis 28, just before the ascension of Christ, after the death, after the resurrection, we have the ascension of Christ. Before he ascends into glory at the right hand of God the Father, he says the very last words recorded by Matthew in his gospel, verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you is God's name. I am with you is Jesus' name. You're not alone. He's with you. And then the climax. Revelation 21. Quickly turn. Revelation 21, verse 1. Here we have the new heaven. We have a vision of the new heaven. The same John. John gives us a vision of the new heaven, the new earth. And what do we find? Well, let me read Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's the breath we breathe in the new heaven and new earth. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Even you, Jacob... Let me close. Perhaps, perhaps you're a Christian, you're born again, but you have, to be honest, you've, been, you've wandered from the Lord, you're wandering in the shadows. Perhaps you've fallen into a deep hole. You're a Christian, you know the Lord, he saved you, but you're in a hole. Why don't you come home? He hasn't moved, you have. Come home. He's with you. Like Jacob, he'll wash you and cleanse you again. Perhaps you're a Christian and you look back over the last month, the last year, and it has been absolutely terrible, just terrible. It's been one of those terrible, terrible years. You are not alone. He is with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Even though some of those things that have happened, you were the cause at least half the time, they are, aren't they? I'm with you. That's the name of God. 
That's the name of Jesus. Perhaps you're not yet a Christian, and yet you have felt, as we've been singing and praying and reading God's word, you have felt God, the Holy Spirit, pressing in upon your heart. You haven't seen a dream like Jacob, but you know God is speaking to you. Why don't you call on him today? Not next week, not next year, today. Say, Lord, have mercy. That's all I can do, ask you to make me a Christian. We come to the Lord's table this morning, which reminds us of what Jesus did to make that possible. We can't just waltz into the presence of God. No, he made it possible by his son dying on the cross, shedding his blood, giving his life. Can you imagine someone died for you? Think about that. Someone died for you. Someone died for you to be with you forever. Turn to him. Come to him. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, all of us who are your children look back with some shame and regret and guilt. We know there are things we have done, we've said, we've thought, we haven't done, we're ashamed of. Oh Lord, will you once again wash us and cleanse us? We thank you for this table which reminds us as to how that is possible. Lord, deal with us. Father, some of us here this morning have had a rough and a tough and a, just a terrible year. Forgive us when we have despaired. Forgive us when we've lost faith in you, and sometimes we have, Lord. Forgive us, cleanse us, remind us once again that you are with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. And there may be someone here this morning who's never turned to God, but you have felt you need to get right with God. Well, you say these words just quietly in your head. Lord, I don't understand it all, but I need you. I know that I'm a Jacob. Different symptoms, but the same disease. Lord, because of the cross, will you cleanse me? Will you wash me? Will you make me a Christian? Father, work with us, we pray. Deal with us. Thank you for your great promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. Amen.